Good evening and Merry Christmas, my friends. Welcome back to Hitchens on Horror. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and this is 12 Nights of Terror, where we explore the very best in holiday fear. This is night number 12, Gremlins. I just said it, but Merry Christmas, everyone. I am recording this uh, in the evening of December 25th, 2021, Christmas Day. Um, even if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you are having a great holiday season. Uh, and Christmas is not necessarily a great time for lots of people. Some people really enjoy Christmas, and for some people it's a time that's really hard to get through. And for all of you who find Christmas a little hard to get through, we made it, my friends. And we're going to end our series of 12 Nights of Terror with a movie that is very much about getting through Christmas. Um, and... It's, I think, my favorite, and I would argue, the best Christmas horror movie ever made. And I am, of course, speaking of Gremlins, which was written by Chris Columbus, directed by Joe Dante, executive produced by Steven Spielberg, music by Jerry Goldsmith, and a tremendous cast Oh, there's so much to talk about with Gremlins. So much interesting trivia. And I'm excited to share all of that with you on this Christmas night, wherever you are. So, Gremlins, uh, aside from being a Christmas comedic horror movie, was actually released on June 8th, 1984, in summertime. And a lot of reviewers at the time questioned that and wondered why Gremlins was released in the summer when it's clearly a Christmas movie and should have been released in November or December, as the Lord intended. And the only reason why Gremlins was not released during the Christmas season as it should have been is because Warner Brothers, the studio that produced uh, Gremlins, realized uh, in the month of June, uh, Warner Brothers had no movie to challenge Ghostbusters and the second Indiana Jones movie, uh, both made my other studios at the box office, and that's why they released Gremlins when they released it in June, not in November or December, as the movie really should have. But this movie, which was made for $11 million at the box office, grossed over $212 million. It was a gigantic success. Um, so even though it was released originally at the wrong time, because this is clearly a great Christmas horror comedy movie, um, it paid off anyway, literally. Um, this film made so much money, and it deserves it so much. I'm so glad this movie was a popular success. Uh, and before we get into the nitty-gritty of Gremlins, I do have to mention that it is because of Gremlins and Steven Spielberg that the PG-13 rating exists. 
uh, because before 1984, the only ratings that existed were G, PG, and R, um, and then X if you were really, really out there. Uh, so Gremlins was released on a PG rating, uh, and a PG rating really implies it, it's parental guidance suggested, um, but that uh, the connotation of that is that this is really okay for your young children to see. You might want to come along with them parents, um, but this is fine. And Gremlins, uh, as a film, is so... Uh, has such a dark sense of humor and is so uh, violent. Um, it's not R-rated violence, for sure, but it is quite violent. Um but it was given the PG rating, and a lot of parents took their young children to Gremlins, expecting that they would see a family-friendly uh, family movie about some cuddly little creatures, and then Gremlins is what they got. So there was a huge outcry, uh, to the point when the MPAA called Steven Spielberg into a meeting and really dressed him down. It's like, you know, how, how dare you... Uh, make this movie, and Steven Spielberg was in double trouble with the MPAA in 1984 because Steven Spielberg directed the second film in the Indiana Jones franchise, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was also rated PG, but also contained a huge amount of violence. So the MPAA was like, Steven Spielberg, how do you justify this? Shame on you for doing this. And Steven Spielberg... Um, having the balls that he er, had earned by that time, said, well, you should create another rating that is something in between the rating of PG and in between the rating of R. And as I said, Gremlins was released in June of 1984. By August of 1984, the MPAA had created the PG-13 rating. Um, and I love that. I think that's just a great little piece of film history there. Um, wanted to get that out of the way off the bat. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this film was written by Chris Columbus. Um, and Chris Columbus got the inspiration for writing the screenplay of Gremlins because he was living in um, a loft apartment in New York City's garden uh, garment district. Uh, and he's, uh, the quote from him is that, it was absolutely lovely during the day, but as soon as I turned the lights off at night, I could hear the sounds of what seemed like hundreds of mice skittering around the apartment in the darkness. And he said... That was so, so creepy, and that is the incident that inspired Chris Columbus to write Gremlins. Um, and I've been in that situation uh, in Philadelphia years ago. I had an apartment in Fairmount um, that was on a block that had a big restaurant at the end of the block, and the restaurant went bankrupt and closed, and that winter, all the mice and rats came into all the other apartment buildings on the block, and... 
it got so bad that uh, I put mouse traps all throughout the apartment, and as soon as I turned out the lights to go to bed at night, you would just hear the sounds of these mice being caught in these traps. Oh God, it was it was awful. It was as awful as it sounds. So. I can understand where this screenplay came from. Uh, and Chris Columbus, this was one of his first screenplays that he wrote, um, along with The Goonies, um, which would come out not long after Gremlins. And Chris Columbus, of course, uh, went on to become a film director, uh, as well as a screenwriter. Chris Columbus is well known for directing Home Alone in 1990, ripping off 3615 Code Père Noël, um, just saying, uh, and also directed Harry Potter movies. Um, Chris Columbus, I think, it has always been a workmanlike director. I mean, if you could just think of someone to direct the film version of the Broadway musical Rent, Chris Columbus would be the last person you would possibly think of, but nevertheless, Chris Columbus ended up directing that fucking awful movie. Um, <laughs> I love Rent. That movie's trash. Um, but Chris Columbus wrote this great script. It is a truly great script. Um, it changed a lot during the production phase of the film. The version of Gremlins that Chris Columbus originally wrote was much, much darker than the movie finally ended up being. And that's really the influence of Steven Spielberg as the executive producer, because he really saw in Gremlins um, the possibility to make a movie that would appeal to a broad range of, of ages and thus make a lot of money. And it's clear from the box office gross of Gremlins that Steven Spielberg was absolutely right. But one of uh, several of the interesting things about Chris Columbus's original script for Gremlins is that um, a the character of Gizmo in the original script was going to become the character of Stripe, the evil um, Mogwai. Um, he wasn't supposed to be Gizmo throughout the entire movie. And Steven Spielberg, with his great eye, said, no, audiences are going to fall in love with Gizmo and want Gizmo to be present throughout the entire film. And so uh, Gizmo becoming Stripe uh, was changed. Um, and I think that's actually, once you know that, it's actually pretty apparent when you watch Gremlins again. Because in the second half of this film, after, um, uh, you know, the Mogwai transform into their Gremlin state, uh, Gizmo doesn't actually have a lot to do in the movie. He's mostly relegated to, albeit, I will say, extremely effective reaction shots, um, and in the final sequence in the department store, Gizmo is depicted running uh, in a uh, toy electric car, which also gave the puppeteers uh, a break because the puppet of Gizmo was not designed to do anything in the second half of this movie because in the original second half of this movie, Gizmo was Stripe. He was not his cute self. He was his murdery gremlin self. Um, 
So I think that's a really interesting thing to find. And the original conception of gremlins in Chris Columbus's screenplay uh, was much more violent. Uh, for instance, um, uh, the mother of the main character was originally supposed to be killed in her encounter with the gremlins and have her head, her decapitated head, uh, thrown down the staircase when Billy came to visit his mom. Uh, that didn't happen, and I think that's a good choice. Uh, and also, um, the the character of the the teacher, the local scientist, um, Roy and Dr. Roy Hansen, was originally supposed to be uh, found by the main character, Billy, with uh, hypodermic syringes impaled all over his face, kind of like Pinhead in Hellraiser, before Pinhead in Hellraiser was a thought in Clive Barker's mind. Uh, and Steven Spielberg, Spielberg was like, no, we're not doing that. Um, and so you finally see that uh, teacher and doctor when his dead body is discovered by the main character, Billy, just having one single hypodermic syringe impaled in one of his buttocks, um, which honestly, for me as a child, I found very disturbing. There was something about that image that just creeped me out. Um, I, I, I honestly think even more so than a face impaled with numerous syringes would have. And that brings me to why I think this is my favorite Christmas horror movie ever made. It is the one Christmas horror movie that no matter what, I have to watch on Christmas Day. And it's really because this film was released in 1984. I myself was born in 1985, and I watched Gremlins pretty early on in my childhood. I would say definitely by the time I was eight years old, I had seen this movie. Uh, and I think why Gremlins is so important to me is because it really reflects the world as I saw it in my early childhood. Like, um, from the time I could remember things up to about 10 years old, Gremlins really captures the world I knew. Uh, it, just the way it looked, the way it felt, um, with lots of warm uh, wood paneling everywhere, reflected by Christmas lights, and a family who is not rich, but just trying to do their best, um, and a small-town feel. Uh, it, it really, when I watch this film now, today, in 2021, I see the world I grew up in, and I love that Gremlins, in its moment in time, really captured that. Um, and that's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about nostalgia. It's about remembering when you were a kid and that great anticipation and that coming together of family and the giving of gifts. And Gremlins, for me, it's my childhood as I lived it. Um, and I'm so grateful that this film exists as a record of that. So, that aside... 
I have so much more to talk about, about Gremlins. Um, We'll see how long this episode ends up being. So Gremlins, uh, as I've said, was written by Chris Columbus, but it was directed by Joe Dante. Uh, And Joe Dante had directed one big film before Gremlins, and that was the werewolf horror movie, The Howling, which came out in 1981. And Howling is definitely in the top five, maybe even top three of werewolf movies ever made uh, in terms of its effectiveness. And it was a huge success. But uh, the film studio that Joe Dante directed The Howling for uh, went bankrupt shortly after The Howling came out. So all the money that Joe Dante was due to be paid by that studio, he was never paid. So that was 1981. Fast forward to 1983, 1984. Joe Dante is basically broke. Um, and then he gets a script in the mail called Gremlins by Chris Columbus with a note from executive producer Steven Spielberg. And at first, Joe Dante thought it must have been a prank. He didn't believe it was real. Um, and fortunately for Joe Dante and the box office gross of Gremlins, the offer was real because Spielberg really loved um, Joe Dante's combination of horror and comedy that he had done in The Howling and gave him his uh, second film and his big break into horror, into mainstream filmmaking. And I really like that about Steven Spielberg. You know, Steven Spielberg was a director who honestly first came to prominence in horror, both first on television with his film Duel, Um, And then, of course, with his first major motion picture, Jaws, which became a huge blockbuster. Um, But I think Steven Spielberg always had a soft spot and an eye for filmmaker for young filmmakers getting their start in horror doing truly inventive things and Spielberg then giving them the chance to uh, to do uh, to tell another story on a bigger scale. Uh, Spielberg did this before, uh, two years before Gremlins in 1982 with the movie Poltergeist, uh, directed by Toby Hooper, who had become hugely, hugely well-known for 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, but Poltergeist was Toby Hooper's first real chance at a big-screen success. And... St- Uh, Spielberg did that again with Joe Dante uh, for Gremlins, and I really appreciate that. Uh, Joe Dante, I think, as a director, nails the tone of this film. I love that he was hugely insistent that the movie keep its dark heart. Um, And one of the big criticisms of Gremlins is, of course... Uh, two speeches, really, that Phoebe Cates, as the, uh, as one of the lead characters, Kate gives, and one happens very early in the movie when she says to Billy, played by Zach Galligan, you know, when, because he's like, how could you not like Christmas? Everyone likes Christmas. What's not to like? And, uh, Phoebe Cates, as Kate, says, you know, while some people are opening up their presents, some other people are opening up their wrists. And again, imagine, I was 
quite young when I first watched this movie and heard that sentence uh, in this PG-rated film at the time. And that was really an indication of like, oh, oh, we're going into unexpected territory here. And I think it's an aspect of dark anarchy that Joe Dante as a director implemented in Gremlins that makes this film so great. Um, and I'm going to talk about the rest of Phoebe Cates's speech a little later. Um, okay, so we've talked about Chris Columbus. We've talked about Joe Dante. Uh, it's hard because there were so many great folks involved with the making of this film, and I want to pay full tribute to every single one of them because they deserve it. Um, I I just want to mention we have um, the film score, the film music done by Jerry Goldsmith, the legendary Jerry Goldsmith, who in every, as always, in every film that he ever wrote a musical score for, knocks it out of the park and makes something indelible. Once you hear his music, you don't forget it. Um, And the same is true for Gremlins. I also want to say that this movie, again, starts being the perfect Christmas movie from its very beginning. So in the very... Oh, God. Um... Sorry, there's so much to talk about, so much to love here. Uh, So the very beginning of of Gremlins um, begins with uh, the father figure, Rand Peltzer, played by Hoyt Axton. Uh, And Hoyt Axton was not primarily an actor. He was primarily a folk singer. Um, And and, uh, he wasn't famous for singing a lot of his songs, but a lot of the songs he wrote that he sang, but then were covered by other bigger quote-unquote names, uh, became huge hits, um, which earned him a lot of money as a songwriter and good for him. But Hoyt Axton has a really distinctive voice and such a warm presence, and he is a perfect choice um, for the casting of the father in Gremlins. But this film really begins with him, and Gremlins begins with the voiceover narration of Hoyt Axton as Rand Peltzer uh, talking about looking through Chinatown for a unique gift for his son. And what he finds is eventually the Mogwai, um, who he later renames Gizmo. And honestly, one thing that I learned in my uh, research in for doing this episode of the podcast is that uh, Mogwai is a Cantonese word that means demon or devil, which I think is so great and fascinating. Um, I'm ashamed of myself that I did not know that before. Uh, and Hoyt Axton uh, buys the Mogwai uh, from a, uh, well, kind of steals the Mogwai, really, uh, from an old man's shop in Chinatown uh, with the assistance of the old man's grandson. And then uh, there's the voiceover narration from the grandson of the rules of the Mogwai. And that is no bright lights. Bright lights will kill him. Never give him water. Never get him wet. And then never feed him after midnight. And then the main credits roll. Uh, 
And if you've listened to the 62 horror movies series of this Hitchens on Horror podcast, you'll know when I talk about haunted house movies, I always appreciate when haunted house movies uh, lay out their rules of engagement early, give you the history of the haunted house so you know what has happened and what to expect and all the things that might happen to the current folks inhabiting said haunted house. And... Gremlins really sets up itself as a film almost as a myth or a fairy tale um, in a way that is extremely, extremely appealing. And the old man that is, um, who owns the antique shop in Chinatown, uh, whose grandson steals the Mogwai and sells it to Hoyt Axton because they need the money, is played by the legendary... Act, Asian actor Key Luke. Uh, Key Luke is one of the most prolific actors of the 20th century. He is one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, and Key Luke was 79 years old at the time Gremlins was made. Um, he actually had his 79th birthday during the filming of this movie. And he looked too young. Um, the makeup artist had to severely age him via makeup because he looked like he was at least 20 or 30 years younger than he actually was. And Zach Galligan, who plays the main character, Billy Peltzer, um, uh, in between takes on set, asked Key Luke, what's your secret? And Key Luke said, no fried foods. Uh, so let that be a message to us all. Um, you really should look into the history of Key Luke. Um, he, had an, he had an extraordinary life, um, was an extraordinary actor, really made a huge difference in the world. So anyway, that is the prologue to Gremlins, and then we get the main credits. And the main credits of Gremlins are, I think, what seals it for me and for so many viewers as a perfect Christmas comedic horror film, because you're introduced to a really beautiful, idyllic small town, kind of like Bedford Falls from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which is a movie that is played on a TV by one of the characters in the film very early on. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, clearly an, an influence on this film, and Joe Dante wanted to make sure that you got it. Um, but Kingston Falls is the name of the town in Gremlins, and again, uh, it, it's just so hugely recognizable as a small town, especially for someone like me who grew up in a small town, and it's filled with all these great, fantastic characters. But the thing that truly makes the opening credits of Gremlins exceptional and prepares you for the wonderful experience you're about to have in this movie is the song that plays over the opening credits, which is Christmas Baby Please Come Home, which was originally sung and is mostly identified by the great, great singer Darlene Love. Um, I think Christmas Baby Please Come Home is one of the best Christmas songs ever 
really. Um, and a lot of critics agree, as I was uh, looking up trivia for this film. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Christmas Baby Please Come Home first on its list of the greatest rock and roll Christmas songs, noting that, quote, nobody can match love's emotion and sheer vocal power. And Christmas Baby Please Come Home is a song that is under three minutes, is two minutes, 52 seconds long. But Darlene Love, her vocals in that song and the emotion she puts into them, like it's Aretha Franklin worthy. Um, and Darlene Love is an artist that is still active today. And I'm super, super glad uh, that she's become very well known for this song. Uh, Darlene Love performed Christmas Baby Please, Done Come, uh, Please Come Home every single year on the last uh Chris, on the Christmas episode of David Letterman's late night shows from 1986 to 2014 every single year. And since 2015, Darlene Love has performed Christmas P Baby Please Come Home on The View for their Christmas episodes. Good for her. Such a huge talent, and I'm so glad that she's still being recognized, and her rendition of this song really sets the tone for Gremlins, that you are in for a great Christmas holiday horror comedy experience. All right, we're like basically 30 minutes into this episode, and I've gotten as far as the opening credits, but that's because Gremlins is great, and it's Christmas, and I'm going to give this movie the due it deserves. Um, so, as I've mentioned, one of the great, great things about Gremlins and what makes it successful is its cast, and I'm going to talk about each of the main cast members in turn, because they deserve it. First of all, you have Zach Galligan as the main character, Billy Peltzer, our eyes and ears throughout the film. And Zach Galligan was cast as uh, Billy very, very quickly. He did an audition, an audition with Phoebe Cates, who was already cast as Kate, his love interest in the movie. And uh, during the audition, he laid his head on Phoebe Cates' shoulder and just looked into the camera. And Steven Spielberg said, Oh my God, he's in love with her already. I don't need to see anybody else. So even though Zach Galligan had very little actual film experience, he was cast in this lead role. Um, and justifiably so. I think Zach Galligan is great in this film. Uh, he is... Uh, he's the boy next door. He's the nerdy guy who likes comic books, who likes drawing, who doesn't fit in at his job. Um, I identified with him a lot as a kid and still do. Um, I also have to say I very much enjoy the moment in early on in Gremlins when Zach Galligan comes up into his room, takes off his flannel shirt, revealing his bare chest, and then puts on another almost identical flannel shirt, seemingly changing for no reason except to show the audience his bare chest. And for me, as a uh, as a as a young gay man, uh, young gay kid, I appreciated that moment and still do. Um, 
Zach Galligan is so sweet and endearing and identifiable in Gremlins. Uh, and it's really fun to watch him as the leading character in Waxwork, one, another one of my favorite horror movies, which I covered in the 62 horror movie series, uh, which came out in 1988, um, where he's sort of this rich asshole kind of kid, polar opposite from Billy in Gremlins. Uh, Gremlins and Waxwork were probably Zach Galligan's uh, biggest films, and it's a shame he didn't have a bigger career, um, because I think he's a wonderful actor. Um, he has continued to work all this time, um, up to the present day, and just as recently as a year ago, he appeared in a Super Bowl commercial for Mountain Dew, um, with Gizmo, um, which is lovely. Good for Zach Galligan. And, and of course, you have Phoebe Cates, who I've already mentioned, as Kate, um, the female lead of this movie. And she's absolutely phenomenal in it. Um, and I already mentioned early, the earlier section of the film when she says she doesn't like Christmas and says, like, you know, Christmas isn't a joyous time for everybody. Christmas is a time when a huge amount of people decide to take their own lives, but her performance and Gremlins is hugely, hugely remembered for the monologue that she gives later on in the movie where she talks about why she doesn't like, why, uh, or how she found out that Santa Claus wasn't real and why she hates Christmas and that it's because when she was a, a young child, her father dressed up as Santa Claus to surprise the family and slipped and tried to crawl down the chimney, but uh, slipped and broke his neck. And they didn't find him till days later because of the smell. And that's why she doesn't believe in Santa Claus. And it is one of the great monologues in film. I will die on that hill. That is one of the great monologues in film performed flawlessly by Phoebe Cates. Um, the studio really wanted that monologue out of the movie. They, because they thought it was too ambiguous, they were like, is this supposed to be sad? Is this supposed to be funny? And Joe Dante, the director, was like, it's both. It's both of those things. It is sad and it is funny. And he said, that monologue was an encapsulation of the entire tone of Gremlins the film, and he's absolutely right. Um, and Steven Spielberg actually didn't like that monologue either. He also wanted it taken out, but Spielberg uh, was like, "Joe Dante, you're the director. This is your move. This is your movie. It stays in, and it stayed in. And I'm so glad it does." Um, we talked about how wonderful Hoyt Axton is as the dad, Rand Peltzer. Let's also chat about Frances Lee McCain, who plays the mom, Lynn Peltzer. Um, she's so lovely in this film. Uh, and I think she and Hoyt Axton uh, as a couple work so well together because Hoyt Axton's character is kind of this sort of failed inventor. But there is a lovely, lovely moment in Gremlins when... Uh, the mother, Lynn, played by Frances Lee McCain, is trying to make coffee with her husband's invented coffee maker, and it comes out as this, like, 
thick sludge. And she's like, I don't think we can drink this. Uh, and she sets a cup in front of her husband. And he starts to stir it. And Hoyt Axton says, oh, what's wrong with this? And then mom and dad, played by Hoyt Axton and Francis Lee McCain, both burst out into laughter. And I think that's such a beautiful moment because it would be so easy to portray this marriage as like, oh, here's this husband wasting all the family's time and spending all the money on these useless inventions that always fail. And she's angry and bitter about that and hurt. But instead, they laugh about it together. They laugh. And I think that is beautiful and so Christmas. And Frances Lee McCain as Lynn Peltzer also has the tremendous um, set piece sequence where she fends off all the different gremlins in her house. I mean, for me, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, the Drew, the opening scene of Scream with Drew Barrymore and that like this sequence with Frances Lee McCain fighting off the gremlins really could be stand tall as a short horror film all of its own. It's so, so great. Um, okay, moving along in the cast, you have Dick Murray as Murray... Futterman, and Jackie Joseph as Sheila Futterman, the sort of eccentric old couple in the neighborhood. And both Dick Miller and Jackie Joseph were huge veterans of Roger Corman movies, and both of them actually appeared in Roger Corman's original The Little Shop of Horrors. Dick Miller played a small part, but Jackie Joseph played the role of Audrey. Jackie Joseph um, Sheila Futterman in the in Gremlins is the original Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Roger Corman. And they're delightful together. They're fun and hilarious. Dick Miller was a hugely, hugely active character actor. I mean, if you look, if you go to his page on Wikipedia and look at his credits throughout the entirety of the 1970s and the 1980s, Dick Miller was making at least three or five movies every single year, just working all the time. God bless. Great job. They're both wonderful and wonderfully uh, reprised their roles in Gremlins to the new batch, uh, the sequel to this film. I also want to mention Corey Feldman as Pete, um, who has the unfortunate task of walking around in a Christmas tree costume because his father is the one who's selling Christmas trees to the town. And uh, this is one of Corey Feldman's early credits, um, one of his two 1984 horror movie credits. Um, Corey Feldman appeared in Gremlins and also the same year appeared in a hugely, hugely significant role in Friday the 13th, Part 4, the final chapter, which is regarded as one of the very best films in the Friday the 13th franchise. And Corey Feldman would, of course, go on to make many, many other great films, um, so many great roles, um, still working today, still doing important activism. Love Corey Feldman. It's great to see him here um, so young. You also have the great Glenn Turman 
as Roy Hansen, the uh, teacher and uh, doctor scientist that um, Zach Galligan's Billy goes to to analyze the gremlins and who meets his death with a syringe in the buttock or something like that. Glenn Turman uh, is pretty young in this film, uh, but he had already had an amazing history as an actor. Glenn Turman was in the original production of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, the production that starred Sidney fucking Poitier and Ruby D as the main leads, as well as Louis, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. Uh, so that was his theater debut, uh, Glenn Turman, and has so many great credits since, was most recently uh, seen uh, as a character in the film adaptation of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starring the late Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis. And there was a, a lot of talk during that uh, release period that Glenn Turman should be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I honestly think he should have been because he is phenomenally good in that movie. Just a great actor. We talked about um, Key Luke um, as Mr. Wing a little bit earlier. Finally, I want to, uh, not quite so finally, but I do want to mention Polly Holiday as Mrs. Deagle, who is sort of uh, an old lady version of Ebenezer Scrooge, who is so deliciously evil in this movie. Um, her role as Mrs. Deagle is one of those parts that, like, I wish we could give a special Academy Award to. Um, makes me feel a little bit better that Polly Holiday won uh, a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress for Gremlins. And for those who don't know, the Saturn Award is an award that is given uh, to honor films in the uh, horror, science fiction, and fantasy genres every single year. Um, Polly Holiday is so repulsively awful as Mrs. Deagle. Like, it, I, I don't think... I've ever seen a person talk in detail about painfully killing a dog with such relish. Um, but as despicable as she is, she's also hysterically funny, often at the same time. It's just a tremendously great performance. And I love that later on in the film, when you finally get to see her in her own home, that uh, that she's a crazy cat lady, that she has all these cats, and all the cats, if you pay attention, all the cats are named after different uh, names for money from all over the world, um, like Dollar Bill, and Ruble, and Kopeck, and Peso. It's hilarious, and her death is hilarious, um, and very like darkly so, in a way that really struck me as a youngster. Um, so praise for Polly Holiday as well. We also have to talk about Howie Mandel, who is the voice of Gizmo. Um, Howie Mandel is an extremely gifted voice actor. Um, he's also been uh, a judge on the vo on the TV show The Voice for, I think, Christ, about like 12 to 15 seasons, something ridiculous like that. Good for him. Um, but he is terrific as the voice of Gizmo and as the voice of Stripe, the main gremlin antagonist in this film, is none other than legendary voice actor 
Frank Welker, who first came to prominence for doing the voice of uh, Fred Jones in the original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, and who has voiced Fred Jones in almost every, almost every other iteration of Scooby-Doo, both in TV and film since the original, and has also done the voice of um, Shaggy uh, very, uh, quite often uh, in the past couple years. Frank Welker is still, is still alive, bless him. Uh, he is currently 75 years old, uh, and because of the immense amount of voice work that he has done for so many films, Frank Welker is actually the third highest grossing actor of all time. Yeah, you heard that right. I'll tell you who the other two are. The highest grossing actor of all time is technically... Stan Lee, um, cradle of, the creator of many of the Marvel movies, and because he appeared in the Marvel film, in several Marvel films, he counts. Stan Lee, God bless him, and his genius, is the highest grossing film actor of all time. Number two is Samuel L. Jackson, um, and definitely the Star Wars and, and Marvel movies have helped him to that number two spot. But then you have number three, Frank Welker, primarily a voice actor, third highest grossing actor of all time. Um, I love that detail. Uh, okay, so the gremlin effects that were done in this film, they were really, really incredibly, incredibly done by a special effects artist by the name of Chris Wallace. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. His last name is W-A-L-A-S. Uh, Chris Wallace originally did not dreaded making puppets for all, for Gizmo and all of the different gremlins just because of how labor-intensive it would have been. Uh, and so he presented executive producer Steven Spielberg and director Joe Dante with another option. What if we used monkeys as the, as the gremlins and put masks and costumes on them? Well, uh, the first monkey that they put a gremlin head on the monkey was terrified and screamed and screamed and ran around. Um, and then Steven Spielberg turned to Chris Wallace and said, so, puppets? Um, and that's what was used in Gremlins. And it's truly a amazing display of the brilliant art of puppetry in Gremlins because... Uh, Gizmo himself as a character, the other Mogwai, and then the gremlins themselves, they're not CGI. There is no CGI. This is all practical puppetry that is happening. And because of that, you really believe that these creatures are real. And I think that is a huge, huge reason why gremlins became and is the success that it is because you believe gizmo's real uh you fall in love with gizmo you become terrified of the gremlins and they're all so specific and 
It's because of the art of puppetry. Uh, because Gizmo was a smaller puppet than the gremlins themselves, Gizmo was much more prone to breaking down and not being able to be used. Uh, and because Gizmo is, you know, kind of very, very important to this film, uh, the puppeteer staff was just so pissed off uh, and angry about having to deal with Gizmo all the time. So they created a list, and this is documented to be true, um, called Horrible Things to Do to Gizmo. And one of those horrible things to do to Gizmo is having Gizmo placed on a dartboard and throwing darts on him. And that's why you see that in the film. Um, that comes from the crew's and the puppeteer's constant dissatisfaction with trying to get Gizmo right. Um, Steven Spielberg was really correct in having Gizmo stay Gizmo throughout the entire film and to be the hero of the movie. Um, because, as I said a moment ago, you really do fall in love with him. You care about Gizmo. You want Gizmo to be the hero. And it is fitting that Gizmo uh, is finally the person to take down Stripe um, by lifting up a window uh, shade in a department store. And fun fact, originally in the script... And as it was originally filmed, in the climax of Gremlins, Gizmo was going to lift one shade and Billy, played by Zach Galligan, was going to lift the other. So they would both be the ones to kill Stripe, the main Gremlin villain. But um, it was uh, the film was edited to show only Gizmo being the person to uh, lift up a shade to kill Stripe. And when the director, Joe Dante, showed the first cut of Gremlins to Zach Galligan, who played Billy, Joe Dante said to Zach Galligan, do you want to guess whose idea that was? Meaning, whose idea it was to cut Zach Galligan, being part of the destruction of the villain. And Zach Galligan very wisely said, no, because I would very much like to work with him again in the future. <laughs> uh, meaning, of course, Steven Spielberg. Um, very, very smart. Uh, there have been many who, uh, and I think I agree with them, who say that Gremlins is, in a way, a critique of Western civilization, um, specifically a critique of American culture and consumerism, that there is this ancient being... Uh, the Mogwai, who uh, other cultures in the world have learned how to take care of and to bear the responsibility that comes with owning a Mogwai. And the Americans, they are not there yet. They do not have the discipline. They do not have the sense of responsibility um, to take care of such a volatile thing. And, ooh! My, in 2021, that kind of resonates um, as it I as it did back in 1984 too. Um, so I see I can definitely see that reading of the movie. Um, but I have to say, Gremlins for me is the best Christmas film, as I've said, because it's about nostalgia. It reminds me of what it felt like when I was a child, when I was growing up, when I still had my innocence, when I still believed in Santa Claus, 
and really felt the magic of the Christmas season um, and having it with the people I loved most. And Gremlins, I think, truly does reflect that, not just for folks of my generation, but for any generation. Um, I think this is a great, great film. Again, for me, the best Christmas horror movie ever made. And as I've said very early on uh, in this episode, Christmas is a great time for many. Christmas is a very hard time for some. But I have always felt, and I've made it part of my life's work, is my belief that horror brings people together. Just like comedy, like laughter, brings strangers together, unites them in a moment. Horror does that too. It gives you that moment of terror where you all scream in unison and then you laugh together because you realize that you're safe and you're all together in a dark room and you're okay. That's why I love horror. And that's why I wanted to do this series of 12 Nights of Terror. And for all of you who have been listening with me throughout this holiday season, and for all of you who might listen to this series a little later on, I thank you and I welcome you. You're part of my family. Merry Christmas, my friends. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on Hitchens on Horrors Series 12 Nights of Terror. A Merry Christmas to all of you. Hitchens on Horror will continue as a podcast in early 2022. I already have the next series of episodes I want to do planned. We're going to go back to the beginning of American Horror, my friends. Our next series will be on the Universal Monsters, the iconic horror movies produced by Universal Studios in the 1930s and 1940s. Look for that coming next year. Be safe, be well, happy holidays, and as always, from my heart, pleasant dreams. <laughs>